0: and faith, and the deliverance of God. As we continue our Heart of the Kings uh, series, let's go to the Lord now uh, in prayer. Well, Father, you tell us in your word that if we intend to live godly in Christ Jesus in this present age, we will suffer persecution. We learn from Romans 8 that in these bodies we groan, in this cursed world we we groan. In this world, we will know many sorrows, many trials, many afflictions. And yet you, Lord, are sovereign over these things, providential in these things. Use all these things to both draw us to yourself and humble us and teach us dependence and grow our faith and conform us to the image of your Son. You deliver us from little trials in this life, but most especially those are just foretastes of the greater deliverance to come. And so we pray that you would open our hearts to receive from your word, to trust you, to believe you, to lean not on our own understanding, but upon your promises, upon your character, upon your faithful works in Christ, upon all that you say you have done, and all that you say, you will do. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Well, in Luke 18, Jesus tells a marvelous parable about a judge who neither feared God nor respected people, and a widow comes to this judge begging for mercy from an adversary, and she just kept coming back, time after time after time. And listen to what the judge said to himself. The judge said, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then Jesus then said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. He says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That really is the big question. Not will God deliver. That's easy. Yes. He absolutely will deliver his elect. What does Jesus say? Speedily. That's how quickly. What's our life but a mist? Here today, gone tomorrow. So he will deliver speedily. The big question is, will anyone believe him? Will anyone trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? Will any of us cry out to him in faith and not lose heart? That's the real work. That's the stuff that that God is having to teach us. And that brings us to the main point for today. You should have it there in your notes. There's handouts at the doors if you didn't get one. Through adversity, the Lord is maturing our faith in Him, sustaining us through the perils of today in order to deliver us from every peril on the last day. Through adversity, the Lord is maturing our faith in Him, sustaining us through the perils of today in order to deliver us from every peril. On the last day. And the reign of Hezekiah, among many things, teaches us that truth. Through his story, we're going to see the maturation of faith. That's going to be our first big point. The deliverance of God. That's going to be the second big point. And then the promise of, of future grace. We're given a brief assessment of his reign right here in Second Kings 18 1 <clears> through 8. He's going to come to the throne at 25 years of age. He's going to reign 29 years. And in verse 3, Scripture says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He even broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. There's a discouraging and concerning statement. This bronze serpent, you know, from, you know, the the journey of the nation of Israel through the wilderness, when they're grumbling and complaining, these serpents come among them to kill them. And so God sort of has Moses make this bronze serpent, and anyone who looks on that bronze serpent shall live. So it was this instrument of faith and deliverance. And yet by this time, they started treating it like an idol, offering to it, worshiping it. Like we'll take any good gift of God and turn it into an idol. And here Hezekiah sees what it's become and just destroys it, rightly. Verse five, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. And what that means is no other king reformed a nation the way he did. David was a king clearly like him, man after God's own heart, but David didn't have to turn things around the way Hezekiah did. David didn't have to inherit the same mess Hezekiah did from his father. So nobody was before him or after him. Verse six, he held fast to the Lord and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. And so by God's grace, Hezekiah is going to try to cleanse the land of idolatry, restore the true worship of Yahweh, But then also during his reign, we learn in verses 9 through 12, the kingdom of Assyria is going to come down into the northern kingdom of Israel, into Samaria, and conquer it. And so as Hezekiah is there reigning in the south, Israel in the north is slowly being scattered across the world by Assyria. And verse 12 explains it. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. That sums up the northern kingdom. Didn't do anything that God had told them to do. They didn't listen to him, didn't obey him. And now Assyria comes and scatters them, just as God promised that they would. And then, eight years later, verse 13, so eight years passes from verse 12 to verse 13. Now, the army of Assyria just keeps moving south. And now they're going to move into the kingdom of Judah and start to capture cities. And this is where the maturation of Hezekiah's faith is really going to begin. Which brings us to the first point, just the maturation of faith. 2 Kings 18, verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish and saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So notice no no prayer at this point, no seeking the Lord at this point. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So what we're going to notice, firstly, is how his faith begins small. Just as our faith begins small, he doesn't begin with fasting, with sackcloth, with desperate prayer. No, he tries to buy the king of Assyria off, to pay tribute to him, to buy a little time. And if we were to read Isaiah 22, verses 8 through 11, we would also learn that Hezekiah started plotting in other ways. Isaiah 22, 8, they look to the weapons of the house of the forest. In the next verse in Isaiah, they started fortifying the walls of Jerusalem. They made a reservoir of water for the city that was protected. They started sort of fortifying and rearranging the pieces to try to draw back and protect themselves. Isaiah twenty-two eleven, But they did not look to him who did it, or see him who planned it long ago. What a statement. Why is Assyria coming into Judah? Because God planned it long ago. He ultimately is the one wielding the instrument of Assyria. But it says, but they didn't look to him. Hezekiah didn't look to him. The people didn't look to him. Nobody's asking him, seeking him, wondering what's going on. The Lord sends Isaiah throughout these years to address these problems, so Micah the prophet is prophesying in these days. Isaiah the prophet is prophesying in these days. And we'll see later it does begin to work on Hezekiah. Hezekiah is going to be this beautiful case study in how the word of God shapes him and changes him over time. According to Isaiah 30, Hezekiah then tried to ally with Egypt against Assyria, so he's going to send envoys and people to, to Egypt to try to get Egypt to ally with him, to fight against Assyria, which is why we get 2 Kings 18.17. The king of Assyria hears of this and now sends his envoy. 2 Kings 18.17, And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshekah with a great army from Lachish, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem." So the Reb Sheka was a, it's a title, it's a kind of chief vizier, a sort of secretary of state. That's who Sennacherib is sending. And he's going to bring an envoy from the king of Assyria along with a great army because they've received news that Hezekiah is trying to ally with Egypt. And he alludes to this in verse 19 through 21. And the Rebsheka said to them, meaning to the envoy from Hezekiah, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you are now trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it? Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Now, in one way, this is taunting. In another way, this is a Gentile sort of unbeliever rebuking a believing king. Like the irony of these words, why are you trusting in the king of Egypt? (laughs) He can't help you. It's like a broken reed. You lean on it, it's just going to pierce you. It's going to hurt you, not help you. But this is how the Lord's going to begin to instruct Hezekiah's faith. We're going to see in a little bit, yeah, he's, he's... correct he's instructing his faith through isaiah through micah but he'll also instruct our faith through the world through the world confronting our faithlessness that's what is happening here because the lord is instructing his faith as he instructs our faith by this point the lord had already reproved the leaders of judah hezekiah included reproved them for looking to egypt for help And we read all about this reproof in Isaiah 30. So Isaiah 30, what he's talking about there is to Hezekiah and to the leaders of Judah at this time. Listen to what he says. Isaiah 31. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, meaning it's going to fail, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. So idolatry, immorality, injustice in the land, those were the first sins. But now he says, now you run to Egypt when I discipline you? That's to add sin to sin. It's a great lesson there for us. We all sin. We all stumble. We all wander from the Lord, and he's going to reprove us. Don't add sin to sin by stubbornly being unrepentant. That's his point. Rather, repent. Turn, trust, look to him. So Isaiah's confronting this. What did the Lord want from them? Well, Isaiah's going to tell them. Isaiah 30, verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. What a statement. In returning and rest is your salvation. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. How many of us usually put those words together in life? Quietness, rest. Be still. That's strength. He says, but you were unwilling. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Well, therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. So the Lord's clear. Yeah, there's just, he's not going to let our own devices, our own efforts, our own means of salvation work. The answer was not buying Assyria off, Hezekiah tried that, not fortifying the city, he tried that, not allying with Egypt in order for Pharaoh to deliver them. No, the answer, Isaiah 30, in returning and rest, you shall be saved, which means repentance and faith in the Lord, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength, which means being still before God in prayer, being still before God and trusting him to deliver in the right way, at the right time, for the right reasons. I mean think about it. how hard is that to do when trouble comes, when affliction comes, to be still, to pray, to rest in God's goodness, to trust in his providence, to know he'll deliver at the right time, in the right way. It's very un American. It's very unhuman to respond that way. Our instinct is to plot, to plan, to frantically scramble around to fix whatever trouble, to escape the trouble, seize power, seize control, work harder, organize, budget well, save enough money, be physically strong, cheat death, make friends with the world, rely on worldly resources. You see it. You see Christians tempted in, this, in these days. Political unrest, global unrest, How much talk you'll get of? Okay, go buy more guns, get more ammo, fortify your house. What I mean, whatever it is, or just get the right people in power. And yet, the theme of Scripture is no in quietness, rest, trust, faith, fasting, sackcloth, humility, looking to our God to deliver. Be still. Trust him, he's good, he's mighty, and he uses all things for the good of those who love him. The Lord wants our faith. That's what he's after. He wants our hearts. And he's far more concerned with your faith than your circumstances. He's far more concerned with having your heart than having your life easy. Because he knows where this is all going. John 11, remember, they send word, the, the sisters of Lazarus, to Jesus. Hey, you're this one who you love, Lazarus, he, he's, he's dying. Come. And it says, and Jesus waits three days. Why? So that he'll die and be buried. And then Jesus says to his disciples, okay, we're going to go to him. Our friend Lazarus, he's fallen asleep. And they're like, well, he'll wake up. No, no, he's dead. And then he says, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you would believe, that's what he says. Well, believe what? That he's the resurrection and the life. That's gonna be his point, the whole point of the chapter. So I'm gonna go and I'm gonna call him out and bring him from the grave, not so that everybody can have this guy alive again, but to make one point, I am the resurrection and the life. It's so good for you and everybody that I wasn't there so that he would die so that I could raise him and prove I am the resurrection and the life. It's good that I wasn't there so that you would believe. In other words, it's more important that you believe than people you love not die. It's more important that we learn to trust God and be still before God than all the circumstances of our life work. How hard is that to believe? How much energy do we expend trying to control everything around us? And miss the point God's trying to make. Which is, trust me. Rely on me. Believe in me. Follow me. I've got you. Oh, you've got me. Does that mean everything's going to work? No. But what really matters will work. The Lord teaches us to wait on him. Isaiah goes on to say this. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. What a statement. He's waiting to be gracious to you. and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Isn't that beautiful? That it is to the exaltation of God that He show you mercy. It glorifies Him to show you grace. And so he's waiting, just waiting to be gracious to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait. For him. He's waiting to be gracious. What's he waiting on? For us to wait on him to be gracious. Isaiah 30, 18. So the prophet Isaiah is saying all these things to Hezekiah. He's saying all these things to the leaders of Judah during this time. And this is where I think really Hezekiah is really starting to believe it. He's starting to get it. Because the Lord, point C there, knows how to grow our faith. Go back to 2 Kings 18. And really, the Rev Sheka is going to start alluding to Hezekiah's growing faith in verse 28. Then the Reb Shekah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. That's true. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. By saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. And this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria. You notice the wording? For thus says. It's directly in opposition to the word of God. The king of Assyria. Make your peace with me. Come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine. And eat each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Does that sound familiar? Those were the promises God made to Israel before the promise entering the promised land. Well, the king of Syria said, no, I'll give you that stuff. Until I come and take away to you, take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying... The Lord will deliver us. So what we learn here is at this stage, okay, Hezekiah is starting to change. And he's starting to move away from, okay, don't trust in Egypt, but rather no, trust in the Lord. Rely on the Lord. Because Isaiah is encouraging the king. And the king is actually taking the words of God through the prophet and relaying them to the people. He's calling Judah to trust the Lord, to wait upon God, to stand against the taunts of the enemy and this sort of resilient hope in the Lord. And the taunts just keep coming. Verse 33, has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seferbim and Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? if you know just the stories of scripture, that's the gauntlet being thrown down. Not against Hezekiah, but against the Lord. The Lord sort of arranging all the events, bringing everything to this point, where now this secretary of state of this idolatrous nation is going to taunt the God of Israel. It's going to taunt the Lord. He's going to give you the promises of the promised land. Notice that? A vine, a fig tree, a cistern of your own. Just come to me, submit to me, follow me. None of the gods of any of the other lands have been able to withstand the might of Assyria. And so what on earth makes you think that your God can deliver you? And so like Goliath in centuries past, he's going to taunt the Lord of Israel without really knowing it. Without really knowing what he's doing. And so what's Hezekiah going to do? You know, he could surrender. He could go, you know, this Reb Sheka, He he may be right. We could go with him. We could, we could get all that stuff that he's describing. Nobody die. Just go out and receive new promises from a new land with a new God. That's all it takes. Or he could armor up. You go out and fight. You could sort of pull a William Wallace, Braveheart thing, and just go out screaming and shouting and sort of fight a war that they make movies about, and get in a movie someday. But no, what we'll see is the Word of God through Isaiah is really starting to soak into him. He's really starting to believe it. He's starting to change. According to Jeremiah 26, 18 through 20, Hezekiah is also being humbled by the words of Micah at this point. Jeremiah 26 talks about how Micah is preaching and how Hezekiah is starting to receive it and believe it. Then we see 2 Kings 19, verse 1. And as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, went into the house of the Lord. So he's not going to armor up. He's going to armor down. He's going to sackcloth up. He's going to pray. He's going to fast. He's going to go hit his knees before God. Notice how nobody makes movies about this. This doesn't hit the big cinema. There's not a whole lot of glory for mankind in this one, this kind of response. He's going to enter into the house of the Lord and pray and worship. So important for us to see. Humanly speaking, it looks so weak. It looks so frail. What good is it to go in here and hit your knees and pray? Yet we're meant to see there's no greater position of strength that Hezekiah could take. In verse 2, he sent his leaders to Isaiah, who's going to say to the prophet in verse 3, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke. And of disgrace children have come to the point of birth and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh whom his master the king of Assyria has sent to mock the living God. And will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Love this. Now the king is calling on the prophet to pray. Not the prophet having to rebuke the king for running to Egypt. You see faith growing. He's not going to presume on God, but he will trust God. Verse 5, When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Notice again, God takes it, this is about me, not you. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. He says, don't fear, trust God. And I love what he says here, I mean, later we're going to see real military might from the Lord, but right here, it's just a rumor. I'll just send a rumor, words that will make him panic, and that's what he does, and he sends a rumor, and the king of Assyria is going to go up against Libna, verse 8, which can then give this sort of period of respite, though the death of the king is going to come later. But for now, just the Lord's going to bring this little respite to his people, this welcome rest. But then God wasn't finished. There was still more to do. In verse 10, Sennacherib's going to send messengers to Hezekiah bearing a letter. So in other words, Sennacherib's going to leave because of this rumor. He's going to go to Libna, but then he's not done with Jerusalem. He's going to send the Reb Sheka back with a letter, still wanting to make sure it's clear to everybody, no, I'm coming to conquer you. And in the letter, it says, verse 10, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria? Behold, you've heard that the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? This is where faith, I think, really gets tested, really gets stretched, really gets deepened, really gets strengthened, is in these kinds of moments. Because we've already been through a round of trial or two. We've already been trusting the Lord through it. And just when we think it's over, it comes back. Just when we think, okay, I passed the test, we're done, right? No, no, round four. And then you trust the Lord and follow Him. Okay, now round five. You trust the Lord, you pray, you rest. Okay, now round six. We think it's done. But now we're back in a similar place because there's something in us that thinks once we've done it once, that should be it. Once we've trusted and started following, the Lord should just sort of smooth it all out at that point. Which is true if he intends to leave your faith precisely where it is and not grow it anymore. But if he's after pure gold faith, like faith refined in the furnace, faith that is conformed to the image of Christ, well, then the trials keep coming. So it's so tempting here to get bitter with God or to be self-pitying or to think, okay, did I do something wrong? Like I thought I trusted him. I was following him. I was, why am I back here again? So it's important for us to see, well, because this is how faith is refined. This is the normative Christian life. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus. What will we do? What will Hezekiah do? Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So what did he do? Same thing he did before. Go to the Lord. Go back to the house of the Lord. Hit his knees. Pray. Seek God. Rely on him. We never graduate from that. We keep going back to him. We keep hitting our knees. That trust in the Lord is not a one-off event. Right? We think we just get to 60 on the highway of faith and then hit cruise control and sit back. Well, no, it's continual. We don't graduate from daily dependence on God. Our enemies from yesterday will be our enemies today. And then they'll be our enemies tomorrow. The battles we fought yesterday will be the same battles today, and we're going to fight them again tomorrow. And so we're meant to see that theme in Scripture so that we're not surprised. And we don't panic. We don't think, okay, something's wrong. What is, God must be out of control or something. No, no, this is how it works. The temptations we face yesterday will be the temptations we face most days. The burdens we carry, the hardships we endure, the weaknesses we keep feeling, the gospel does not promise the removal of trouble in this life. In fact, the Bible promises the escalation of trouble in this life. What God promises is to be with us. He promises to comfort us. He promises to be near to us. He promises to care for us. He promises to use it all for our good. He promises to deliver us from time to time from these troubles, but ultimately he will deliver us from all of them as we wait for him. I a meeting years ago with a professional boxer. This is somebody, is the only professional boxer I've ever known. And so we were talking about just what training is like, what preparing is like, what fighting a fight is like. He said, it's one thing to just get pounded by your opponent and to be trying to pound your opponent. It's another thing to do it for 12 rounds. It's like, he would say, 12 rounds of boxing, it's like 10 years. It just keeps going. The exhaustion, the pounding on you, the wear and tear, what it takes. And Every now and then you get to go back to your corner and get a drink. Every now and then, they get to rub your face with Vaseline and clean up some cuts, and, and then the bell rings, and what? You're back in it again. Now, that's not to say the Christian life is a life where, where we're doing all the fighting. No, there's somebody in the ring with us that's supremely powerful. But the point more is, it can feel that way. Just the relentlessness of trials. The day after day. And what's God doing? Well, he's teaching us true dependence. You don't get to take hours off. You don't get to say, okay, this week I'll do it on my own. You don't get to get to a certain point in, in the Christian life where you're like, okay, I'm 60 now. I can retire. I'm 65. I can retire from, because yeah, i have just, again, cruise control. No, he's going to keep growing us, keep maturing us. He's doing that to Hezekiah. The Lord knows how to keep growing our faith, point D. He knows when to let up a little bit. He knows when to go gentle. He knows when to push. There's no teacher like Yahweh. It's one of the things that that Elihu said to Job, or to to Job, as he's sitting there in all that pain, he's like, behold, the Lord, he is exalted in power. There's no teacher like Yahweh. You can trust him with your life. The Lord will never give us more than we can bear. Meaning if he's given it to you, then you can bear it with him. He'll always enable our faith, but he'll always keep refining it round after round. Listen to what the apostle Peter says to Christians who are suffering in Asia Minor. First Peter chapter one, verse six. He says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It appears like you rejoice in what's happening, though now you're grieved by all these trials. Why all these trials? Well, so that the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious to God than gold, can be refined so that when Jesus shows up, you'll actually be happy to see him so that when Jesus arrives, it will culminate in praise and glory and honor. That's what he wants because what a day that'll be. Jesus shows up and you've persevered in the faith for all these decades. Jesus arrives and there you are waiting And the praise and the glory and the honor of that moment. Peter's like, God's preparing you for that. You don't want it where Jesus shows up and you're right in the middle of your backswing. And you're like, oh man, I was going to shoot like under 80 today. Or whatever he's interrupting that you wish he wasn't interrupting by him coming back. Peter's like, you don't want him to find you that way. No, you you want to be glad for his appearing. You want to rejoice in his appearing. This is how he does it. Hezekiah is in the furnace. His faith is being refined. And listen to what it's producing in 2 Kings 19, verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth you the contrast with what the king of Assyria is saying? Yeah, you know, all those other gods? No, you're the god of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord. Hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. That's very true, he says. And have cast their gods into the fire. That's very true. But here's why for they were not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. He appeals to the glory of God. He appeals to the name of God. He appeals to the reputation of God. He appeals to the Lord to make the point that the Lord is always eager to make, that he alone is God. cries out with humble confidence in the Lord. Which brings us to our second big point, the deliverance of God. Isaiah sends word to Hezekiah in verse 20. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. Praise God. There's the first comfort we're meant to have. The Lord hears our prayers in faith. You cry out, he hears. You talk to him, he hears. You petition him, he hears. God hears the prayers of his children. It's a constant theme of scripture. Now, his answer isn't always, yes, I'll do it your way, but it's always, I hear you, and I take it seriously, and I'm going to respond in a way that's exactly what you need, exactly what's best for you. Psalm 4.3, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. That's David's confidence. Psalm 34.17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. It's always true. The timing is what usually surprises us. Will God deliver you out of all your troubles? Absolutely. Absolutely. Precisely when he intends to. Which is not always when we think he should. And so the Lord makes sure Hezekiah knows that his prayers were heard. Behold, he, God is exalted in power. He's transcendent over all things, and yet he's imminent. He's right there with you. You speak, he hears. You cry out, he listens. They reached the ears of his Redeemer, and we can actually read these words in Scripture, read this story so that we know this truth applies to us. So that we can see this is how God deals with His people. Always. He hears their prayers. Now we don't always pray as we are, right? Sometimes we mistake God not doing what we want in response as Him not hearing rather than you know, maybe our prayer wasn't that great. Praise God, we've got the Spirit who intercedes. So we pray and the spirit goes, actually, Lord, here's what he meant. Yeah, yeah, I know he said that, but here's really what John wanted to say. The spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. When we cry out to the Lord, he hears. And then the Lord responds through his word. Not only does the Lord see and hear, he actually speaks to us through his word. He's guiding everything according to his plan. And what the Lord's going to do is actually allow Hezekiah to overhear his words through Isaiah to Sennacherib. It's just great, it's it's almost like God's going to write an open letter to Sennacherib, and Hezekiah gets to overhear it. And that encourages his faith. That's what verses twenty one through twenty eight are. It's God responding through Isaiah to Sennacherib in a way that Hezekiah gets to hear. And it's going to be framed around two questions and then a declaration. Look at verse 22. Who have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? That's just not a question you ever want God to ask you. His answer against the Holy One of Israel. Question two is found down in verse 25. Have you not heard that I determined long ago? He's going to explain it. What he means is, didn't you know that I determined long ago to use you this way? Didn't you know that I determined before you ever existed, Srirachim, that I would pick you up like an axe and use you like an axe with a tree? And then the declaration is in verses 27 and 28. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me because you've raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. So it's God's message to Sennacherib through Isaiah that Hezekiah gets to overhear. Number one, his question is, who do you think you're talking to? That's his first question. Do you not know who I am? Number two, do you not know that I planned to use you in these events long ago before you were ever born? In other words, you're not in control of this, Nacrid. You're an instrument. But then number three, don't boast. For I'm going to just drag you away like a wild animal. In my time, in my reasons. And so he says to Hezekiah, I hear you and I hear him and I'm going to deal with him. Then he says to Hezekiah in verse 29, And this shall be the sign for you, for this year eat what grows of itself, in the second year what springs of the same. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. In other words, I, I hear him, Hezekiah, and I'm going to deal with him. And I hear you And don't fear, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to preserve you. There's going to be a surviving remnant that I know who they are. And they're going to take root downward. They're going to bear fruit upward. And then verse 35. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. One night, probably one hour, 185,000 soldiers. The angel of the Lord just kills them. Can you imagine how many bodies that are? Laying in a camp. What a scene that was. And then Sennacherib's going to go home, and he's going to go into his own temple and worship his false god, Israel, and his own sons are going to murder him there. That's how his life's going to end. Does the Lord know when to bring justice? Does he know how to bring justice? Absolutely. It brings us to the next point. The Lord delivers at the proper time and in the proper way. I mean, just step back for a moment and consider how much biblical text is devoted to the adversity on God's people to the maturation of Hezekiah's faith, to showing false hopes dashed and thwarted, and then finally his repentance and prayer and fasting and sackcloth, seeking God's word, hearing God's word, believing God's word, waiting on God to deliver. In our English Bibles, it's 58 verses of text that were given to that whole process, God dealing with the hearts of his people the heart of his king, making them attentive to his word, guiding wave after wave of these carefully crafted trials to sort of set the stage for the display of his power. And then he kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a single verse. What are we meant to see? What we're meant to see is God defeating his enemies is not a battle. It's not a big thing. It's not hard for him. The battle is getting your heart, getting your faith, getting me to trust him. 58 verses to that. One verse to wipe God wiping out the enemy. At the end, I mean, what the reason you won't make movies about like the end times necessarily and when Jesus finally wins the last battle is because it's the most anticlimactic scene in the history of the world where Jesus descends. You know the story, right? And he kills all his enemies with a word. They all gather at Gog and Magog. There's all the clamor. There's all this kind of stuff. Then he shows up, speaks. They die. It's over that fast. There's never really a climax when God goes to war. It's just over the moment he talks. And that's what we're meant to see. The fight is for our hearts is for us to trust him us to lean on him us to get weaned off the world us to get weaned off our own strength God removing our enemies is easy work for him maturing our faith securing our hopes weaning us from the world getting his word deep in our hearts reorienting our affections purifying our worship that's the work That's what takes time and special care. And I think the Lord wants us, point D, there to see the bigger battle. That the war for our hearts is the bigger battle. Why? Because enmity with God is the greater danger. That's why. Not Assyrians. That's why Jesus said, don't fear man. All they can do is kill your body. Which is an interesting statement. Yeah, don't fear people. All they can do is torture you to death. He so, says, no, fear, fear the one who, after he's killed the body, has the authority both to throw body and soul into hell. He says, fear him. Because the story, I think, brings us to a logical question. Should this deliverance be enough for Hezekiah? All the Assyrian army destroyed, going to get a few good years of crops, some military peace, some financial prosperity, Should this be enough for God's people? And I hope we would all say, absolutely not. We need to be really clear on that. If God says, hey, in your whole lifetime, I'm going to make your country that you live in really prosperous again. I'm going to make all the leaders and all the policies fit your political views. I'm going to give you health and wealth and all this kind of stuff. You just won't have me. How many of us would actually take it? Deliverance from temporary earthly enemies, but not from God. That's why our question, or answer, rather, that question would be: Okay, absolutely not. Assyria may be removed, but you know it's not going to be very long before Babylon came. Right? Babylon's coming right behind them. Then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. Empire after empire going to come and afflict the people of God. And then it all ends and there's the wrath of God. We need something more than just deliverance from temporary foes. Which brings us to our last point, the promise of of future grace. Notice verse 30 and 31. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. I have to go, okay, what's Isaiah talking about? Out of Jerusalem shall go this remnant. Certainly, immediately, there's going to be people in the city of Jerusalem in Judah that are going to survive this and continue living and bear fruit. But another way, he's talking about something very different. He's foreshadowing something, because when prophets talk about the remnant of God's people, they usually have something immediate in mind, but also something ultimate in mind. Listen to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. Isaiah says, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord. I mean, they're going to no longer try to lean on these earthly powers that just mistreat them, but they're going to lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. What a statement. Destruction is decreed. Oh, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. In that day, a remnant of people will turn to the Lord and be delivered. Well, what day? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us here. Because the Apostle Paul actually quotes this passage in Romans 9.27. And he applies it to the redemption of all who turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Paul says that's actually what Isaiah is talking about. There's a day coming where a remnant, a chosen seed, a people will turn from their sin and look to God's promised Messiah, look to Jesus Christ, and they will be saved because I will make a full end to all the earth. But this one group who are put in my redeemer will be spared. They will be saved. And so God's using this deliverance from Assyria under Hezekiah to foreshadow the deliverance of his people ultimately from sin and death and wrath. So even Hezekiah wasn't meant to look at this and go, okay, this is the end. This is it. We got out of this with Assyria. We're great. Even Hezekiah is meant to see, no, this was just a foreshadowing. This was just a foretaste. And not just about Babylon, not just about Medo-Persia, not just about Greece, not just about Rome but about God and about deliverance from him, forgiveness from him, redemption in him, being spared the full end that he's going to bring to the earth. And so Paul's going to argue from Hezekiah's story that the ultimate danger is not Assyria or Rome or cancer or poverty or pandemics, but our sin meeting the justice of God. There's no covering for that outside of Jesus Christ. But praise God, in Christ, there is covering for that. In Paul's words, so that we would wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. So when God says to Hezekiah, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors, the zeal of the Lord will do this, He's talking about the commitment of Yahweh to save his people, not just from temporary enemies, but from all enemies, from death, from his wrath, from sin, and from everything on the earth. And do we realize that's the grace we really need? I mean, that's the grace we really need. Pray for deliverance from sickness? Sure. From hard marriage, from a tough job, from terrorists, or whatever. Okay, yeah, pray for that deliverance, but we should never forget the deliverance we really need. The deliverance the gospel really provides. The deliverance that really makes our heart worship. And that is the deliverance by God, from God. We must never forget why Christ had to die which is to save us from the penalty of sin, to save us from God's judgment. And what that means is deliverance from temporary enemies. is not only, it's good, but it's also just foretaste. It's always meant to make us look to a greater deliverance that's coming. The gospel proclaims that one. And then deliverance from everything else. So the Lord does hear our prayers about present day trials. He really does see our hard circumstances. He really will give respite from time to time. We get to go to the corner of the boxing ring and he gives relief. He gives moments of circumstantial peace. He will always give strength to endure. He will always comfort. He will always be near. But more than anything, he's gonna use all those trials to deepen our faith in Jesus Christ, to tether us to him, to cause us to abide in him, To look to him, to rely on him, to cling to him in everything. To rescue us from eternal danger. To make us really treasure him. To make us really long for home. Not just earthly retirement. Not just earthly ease. Luke 18, and will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's the big question, right? And praise God and his people, yes, he will. That's the very thing he's producing in us. We've got a few minutes left just for questions, for comments, for any thoughts and response to... Second Kings eighteen and nineteen. Any questions? Yes. How's yeah, my mother-in-law doing? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, you can keep praying. Um, she's still in the hospital, back in um, the heart unit, up at Mercy. So she was back in the ER last night, and and just I think the doctors are still a little bit mystified about what's exactly going on, only that her heart is failing. And so, um, yeah, I was visiting with her last night, actually, until um, pretty late, and she's trusting the Lord. She's looking forward to seeing Him. She's, you know, embarrassed about being a bother to us. Um, just the thing that, things your mothers do when, you know, here she is with heart trouble and drawing nearer and nearer to the grave every day and concerned about the time it takes me to sit with her or or Ruth or or how it taxes the you know our family and so yeah just to encourage her to comfort her to share with her what a privilege it is to care for her and how good God is and how kind God is and so yeah keep praying for her and praying for Ruth and praying for us yeah thanks Other questions, comments? Yes. Thank you for all your teaching. You're a wonderful gift to us. Every time we come in here, our hearts are exposed, but we also see the beauty of Christ. Thank you for doing mm. that consistently and faithfully. We um. thank God for you upon every remembrance of you. Thank mm. you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Yeah, it um, you know it's been it's been a sweet study in these with these kings, because it's, as we've seen, it's pretty messy. It's pretty ugly at times. There's a lot of dark parts, but yet there's just always that sliver of light that just always, you trace that sliver of light and you just land at the feet of Christ every time. There's just the whole Testament, it's anticipating Him, longing for Him, looking for Him. And so even, you had to see just even in these kinds of hard afflictions and difficulties, like it It's always moving us toward Him. It's one of the sweet, yeah, encouragements of Scripture. Thank you, brother. Um, What about the situation where Hezekiah asked for more time? Yeah. Yeah, so here later in life, so Hezekiah is going to be given a diagnosis that he's sick and going to die. And it grieves him. And, yeah, he wants more time. He doesn't feel he wants to give up life yet or go see the Lord. And so he prays and asks God for more time. And and God grants it and gives him, I think it's 15 more years, miraculously. And in that window of time, Manasseh is going to be born to Hezekiah, who's going to be the wickedest king that Judah ever sees. And so you see in it God's kindness, God's mercy toward Hezekiah in hearing his prayer. But then also you're going to see it what happens in those 15 years isn't great. Also Babylon's gonna come and Hezekiah's gonna, by by then Hezekiah's rebuilt the nation, rebuilt some of their wealth and their power and their affluence. And so an envoy comes from Babylon and he takes them and shows them the treasury, shows them all their great possessions, shows them their weapons. Just kind of does one of these, you know, just flexes the muscle. And, and then the prophet's gonna say, to Hezekiah, yeah, who are these men? why did they come? What'd you show them? He's like, well, showed them everything. And God's like, yeah, they're going to take it all away. Um, so you've just given them a preview of what is going to be theirs. And so it, yeah, you, in it, you see the mercy of God and hearing his prayer, the kindness of God, extending his life. But also usually when we get more time, we don't use it. Well, I think we're probably meant to see that as well. When the Lord says, Hey, I'm going to take you. Maybe go, you know, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> You know, that it, yeah, I'm not saying we should all want to die as much as go see the Lord and know that more time isn't usually what we need, but rather to be faithful to the time that you've been given and God's grace in that time. Um, And so that, I think to me, there's a lot more we could say about that part of his life, but it's, it is an interesting part of his life. Yeah. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, we do praise you for the promise of future grace. That not only are we in Christ and justified and declared righteous before you, not only is our sin born away, not only are we filled with your spirit and given your word, but we can know with certainty that you're going to preserve us and grow us and refine us and protect us until the last day. And on that last day, we're going to stand before you glorified reconcile all enemies will be put down once and for all there'll be a new heavens a new earth where righteousness will reign where Jesus will be visible will be unopposed will be glorified and magnified and we'll just get to worship and enjoy him and enjoy one another help us wait while we pray in Christ's name yes, that would be a great great help